Welcome back to New Books in Political Science. I'm Susan Lee Bell at St. Joseph's University, and I'm delighted to welcome Yua Ho to discuss her new book, The Private Sector in Public Office, Selective Property Rights in China, published by Cambridge University Press in 2019. Professor Ho is uh, an assistant professor of political science at the University of Pennsylvania. Welcome to the podcast, Hua. Thanks for having me, Susan. You've written a rich, detailed, and ambitious book that documents how private entrepreneurs protect their property from expropriation by the government in a country in which legal protections for property are insecure. Uh, You demonstrate how entrepreneurs run for legislative offices and use their public roles to advance their own economic interests. Uh, Entrepreneurs who hold local legislative seats can leverage their political status to deter predatory behavior by lower-level bureaucrats who fear retribution or punishment from the legislature's political network. So joining local legislatures allows private owners to create, uh, well, to creatively build a system of selective property rights. Let's start with a little bit of the context. Um, You note that the Chinese economy has been expanding since the 1980s with around 10% growth each year. And by 2018, over 60% of gross domestic product and 80% of employment was coming from the private sector. And as you note, this sounds like a private sector that is highly successful and flourishing. But you point out that 51% of private entrepreneurs reported that they faced expropriation by local government to some extent. So I was wondering, can you explain a little bit about this level of property insecurity and why it is... um, uh, was such an, an an interesting point of research for you. Yes, absolutely. So, um, yes, I think you summarized the puzzle really well, which uh, really motivated me to do research into this area, which, it can, which I eventually wrote a book about. That is, the private sector essentially was non-existent before 1980s, and now it really is the main driver uh, behind China's growth, not only for GDP, for industrial output, but also uh, it is really fundamental to China's innovation. And uh, it is um, it is against commonsensical understanding of economic development in the sense that um, China does not have a secure uh, property rights system so that um, you know companies, mostly private companies, which is what I'm looking at, is really... Um, um, prone to expropri- getting expropriated, predated by uh, local government, by national government. So I want to say that the situation is uh, getting better each year, but still, uh, when I look at cases where uh, private companies are located in the more remote areas uh, where local government are are more predatory, less clean, uh, they can really easily uh, find problems in private companies, uh, for example, account books or their uh, work environment, just to, you know, they can easily investigate those companies and seek rents from those companies illegally. So that's uh, that's my definition of expropriation. That's a little different probably from the standard definition, a standard um understanding of expropriation, which is uh, maybe in a Western context, it's uh, nationalization of companies' assets. So in this mm-hmm. context, I'm looking at uh, cases where companies' assets are either fully or partially confiscated or devalued by uh, by governments in China, by local governments in China. So, you know, everyday uh, 
shakeups, partial expropriations, they still happen in China. Um, maybe not so much in big cities such as Beijing and Shanghai, but I do look at some smaller cities and the counties uh, where governments are um, are still more or less expropriatory. So I'm looking at under those conditions, how private companies um, step up and protect themselves. And one interesting um aspect of Chinese politics and business day relation is that Chinese companies cannot directly lobby government for policy changes. Um, unlike what's going on in the U.S., uh, companies spend hundreds of millions of dollars in different sectors to lobby for policy changes. So uh, Chinese private entrepreneurs decided to step up and uh, run for political office themselves. And that's one way for them to, uh, to protect their assets, to build their networks, and uh, essentially to make themselves stronger. So that's what I find fascinating about the case of China and how private companies are really uh, seeking innovative uh, methods, are looking innovatively to, to protect their property and to protect their businesses. When you say that they decided, did they decide as individuals or was there some sort of collective discussion of a strategy? Yeah, so um, in so there are business groups in China, and I don't want to. I don't think they're very strong. There are some uh, group level lobbying and group level associations. A lot of those groups are there, but um, it's very difficult for them to engage in sort of engage in collective action uh, to promote their uh, interests as a group. So I would say that they they look at this opportunity. You know, there are seats that are up for grabs for individuals and uh, private entrepreneurs. They, you know, to some extent become political entrepreneurs and they uh, they find their way in. They really work the system and become a local legislators. So I would say that you see them as a group. They take up a lot of seats, but I would say that it's still more or less an individual strategy because of the, the individual, uh, for the, excuse me, the institutional uh, hurdle for them to act collectively. You, in the book, talk about two different types of property, intellectual property, patents and copyrights, and physical property, land and capital. And your focus is mostly on physical property. Um, You note that property rights have sort of three distinct components, the right to use an asset, the right to earn income from an asset and contract with other individuals uh, regarding that asset, and also the right to alienate or sell the asset. And then you try to connect legal property rights and economic property rights. And I was wondering if you could define each for our listeners and and explain their role in your analysis of Chinese politics and economics. Yes. Um, So you're definitely right. So there's physical property rights and intellectual property rights. I didn't talk much about the latter because it's really... um, you know, it's a whole new area by itself, and there are a lot of um, political scientists, economists who who have written about it. I focus on physical assets in this book, probably because that I focus on um, smaller companies. I mean, they're also innovative, but um, I wasn't really looking at um, the big companies such as Huawei and Alibaba. Those companies you you heard that represents the the frontier of Chinese private companies that are really innovative, that are, you know, filing a lot of patents, et cetera. So the companies that I'm looking at, there are a lot of manufacturing companies, um, you know, more traditional uh, companies. So they, 
Um, so they are really trying to protect their physical assets, although they also have some intellectual innovations. So when so when you um, when you look at how you know how they use their assets, how they earn income from the assets, and also the freedom to sell their property at uh, property and assets, um, they can face. Uh, different types of threats from local government. To give you some examples from my book, um, for example, um, no matter what kind of industry a company is in, they they can receive visits from local tax bureau, uh, local tax officers, for example, to take a look at their ledger books. Even if they pay tax uh, every year, they still face this kind of um, ad hoc investigation visits, um, you know, irregularly. So a bureaucrat can easily find another hole in their ledger and, uh, you know, and to, to shake up their company and to get some money out of it. So that's one case where, you know, a company's assets is partially confiscated. So I'm not looking at a huge amount of value. So those company could be very, companies could be small companies and, uh, you know, they can, uh, local bureaucrats can shake up a little bit money out of it. But when you look at aggregate number, it actually adds up. And another case I remember uh, very vividly was um, was a company that sells computers, and uh, so this uh, business owner tells me that you know it happened recently that uh, a bureaucrat came to his company and just asked the company for donation of computers to to the government uh, office, and uh, he complied because he thinks it's not a huge deal, but again, it's just um, government office. Um, explicitly ask for the company's assets and uh you know the mm-hmm. owner just had to give it away so i'm looking at those maybe smaller scale pop, um infringement on property rights but i want to say that um on the larger scale they do add up and uh, it's uh, those activities are are illegal and that's what i'm looking at um before we talk more about the the general argument let's talk a little bit about the methods. This is this is a really sophisticated book, and it combines quantitative and qualitative data. You are interviewing people. Uh, you're doing these audit experiments. Can you first tell everybody a bit about why you chose the regions of China that you did? Because you're not doing there. Nobody could do the entire country. Too large. Um, and just talk a little bit about how you did this research, and also you know you're dealing with. Uh, particularly with these elected officials, these are these are risk averse, politically sensitive people, and so I'm wondering about the delicacy of interviewing them and the extent to which they were shy about being interviewed. Yes, yes, definitely. So uh, it was a challenge to do uh, to do field work on this topic, which, as you rightly pointed out, is uh, is very sensitive. So I chose a few provinces in different parts of China. So um, there. On the east co- eastern coast of China, I chose the province of Zhejiang, which is one of the um, more advanced provinces in terms of private sector development. And uh, the local government has a reputation of being um, clean and uh, service-oriented. So there I was hoping to find a more um, professional um, group of bureaucrats who treat um, individuals with more 
um, professionalism, dignity, and uh, you know, accord, more according to the rule of law, etc. And uh, two other provinces, one in central China, uh, Hunan province, and the western province, uh, Guizhou province. So in these two uh, locations, uh, business-state relationships were more murky in the sense that um, governments are stronger and they could be more predatory and the private sectors were weaker. So in choosing those three provinces, I, I I, I got a more or less rep- more representative sample of business state relations in China. And also, I could look at a private sector with different strengths. So that's how I chose uh, those locations. And I also talked to uh, scholars uh, in Beijing and Shanghai in those universities. And uh, you're definitely right. It's not very, uh, it's a political sensitive topic to, to chat with those elected um, officials about uh, you know their businesses so I talk to mostly private entrepreneurs um, they either entered the political office or they tried but didn't enter so I didn't start out by asking them about their political ambition I usually um, you know it's usually I conduct semi-structured interview just asking them to talk about their businesses and when you ask them about their businesses there are usually uh, excited about what they're doing, and uh, they usually are very busy, but they're very proud of their businesses because I think most of them were successful to some extent. Uh, you know, their business are still running, and uh, if they could potentially seek a seat in the local legislature, that meant that their businesses were on the more successful side. And um, you know, and as the conversations uh, went along, I would talk about. Um, you know, doing business in the locality, what kind of problems that they uh, run into and what kind of solutions that they may come up with. Um, so during those conversations, they they sometimes bring about, uh, you know, seeking political office and they talk about other strategies for them to build connections with local government officials. And uh, they talk about their frustrations too, because, you know, they, they needed to discuss those issues with someone. And uh, I, I, I present myself as a researcher, not as, um, you know, a policy maker or, you know, it's it's basically a more casual conversation, more or less. So I think some of those conversations, um, you know, went really well. But, of course, there are people who were hesitant to talk about how they seek office, what kind of arrangements were made under the table, because, uh, you know, those arrangements may not be 100% legal. So in those cases, I, I guess I just had to move on and talk to other entrepreneurs and other uh, politicians who might be interested in talking about this. And um, I'm sure you noticed that too, that I talked to more entrepreneurs than bureaucrats um, for my research, because when you ask bureaucrats about um, about expropriation, um, yeah, they didn't really want to talk about it. So it's uh, on that side, on that uh, aspect, I feel my my book is um is a little more one sided. Uh, that I had more evidence collected from the entrepreneurs, but a little bit less so from the bureaucrats. And uh, knowing that this might be uh, a limitation of my book, I went ahead and did audit experiment, which is also what you mentioned. It was in the later chapters. So there I conducted field exper- audit experiments uh, where I um, pretended I was a business owner and uh, I thought information from government uh, bureaucrats about a tax policy. So there I could really compare different scenarios and see how bureaucrats might react to uh, hypothetical business owners under different situations. So that's really mm-hmm. one way for me to get at the attitude of, uh, of Chinese bureaucrats. 
at some point in the book, you vote, you quote Vio Key and the, you know, his comment about how the nature of the workings of government depends on the men who run it, something like that. Right. And it made me think about men. Um, mm-hmm. Are most of these um, bureaucrats, the lower bureaucrats, men? Are the business owners men and women? What, what is the gender mix here? Yes. So they're mostly, majority of them are men. But I want to say that there were more female entrepreneurs who became legislators because um, local legislators in China have to fulfill some kind of quota. So when you look at the percentage of women legislators in China, it's actually at a higher percentage when you compare that with, say, the U.S. Uh, Congress. So it's not a fair comparison, you know, comparing local level to the to the national uh, level here. But uh, I did encounter uh, female entrepreneurs who are very active in in the legislatures. I don't think that was gender was not a focus of my research. But when I was uh, interviewing uh, legislators, what they were doing in uh, you know in their day to day legislative businesses, I actually find a lot of women um, entrepreneurs. Who who, who write a lot of legislative bills or policy proposals. And uh, there was this one woman whose business was actually moved from one province to another, but her legislative seat was in the previous province. So she flew back regularly to her previous province to fulfill her legislative duties. So there I do see a strong commitment of women uh, in fulfilling their political role. But that's just one anecdote which made a strong impression. So I think I'm very interested in doing further study to look at, you know, where there is a gender uh, divide in terms of uh, what they write about in their bills and, uh, you know, and how, how the business are going after they, they have a seat. But I would I have to say that um, primarily, predominantly, there are more men than women in both business sector and also in uh, in the government sector. That's fascinating. So how did you come to this project in the first place? What what drew you to this aspect of um, the intersection of Chinese politics and law and economics? Yeah, so, um, so I'm always interested in political economy and development. And uh, I am from China, so I grew up in China and uh, came to the United States when I was 18. So I do think that theoretically what still puzzles many people about China's growth is really, you know, the imperfect institutional design and the very fast, very rapid economic development on the other hand. So people are still trying to reconcile those two. And uh, when I think about, you know, what to write about in political science economics, and I still think, you know, I understand China better. And uh, this is you know, really one point of entry that um, that I want to understand a little better. And uh, personally, I also wrote about this in the preface of my book, that when I was uh, thinking about my dissertation one summer, I received an email from uh, a friend's friends um, whose, whose father was a private entrepreneur and was... Um, was in big trouble because he was illegally um, he was charged of illegally uh, illegally fundraising um, for his own property uh, projects in uh, in China and he eventually received death penalty for the for the alleged crime and he was executed very quickly so this story was uh, left a strong impression in me uh, I didn't know too much uh, detail about the case but usually. Um, but you know the speed of uh, the trial and uh, also the 
you know, the inhumanity of it, right? So the daughter didn't really get to see the father uh, before he was executed. Made me think, you know, there are um, the private entrepreneurs, there's at um, such a disadvantaged position in China, although they're contributing so much, contributing so much to the economy. So that was more of an emotional starting place for me to try to understand the group a little more. So I think putting all those pieces together, you know, this empirical, the theoretical puzzle and, uh, and this personal story eventually drove me into studying this topic. And in the beginning, I also didn't think, um, I didn't really anchor on the property rights aspect. You know, when I was trying, when I was interviewing private entrepreneurs, I really wanted to understand, uh, you know, how, how they became successful, how they run their business in China, and why do they want to join politics? And, uh, you know, when we were studying political science theory, we think about modernization theory. When individuals become uh, rich, they want to be politically influential. So is that the case in China? I want to find out whether modernization theory could explain political participation among the entrepreneurs. And later I realized um, they, they really still couldn't um, earn that much political power. It's really about individual level, you know, protection, interest advancements, etc. So I guess that's the long-winded uh, answer to, to the question of why I started this topic. Oh, no, not at all. That's It's fascinating. I'm glad you brought out that story. And I think that one of the things that's most important about this book is how your research maps onto our previous assumptions about property rights, rule of law, and economic growth. And you, you know, you're providing both a, a very careful description of this selective property rights regime. And I mean, the uh, I recommend the book highly to the listeners. It provides this micro level evidence and, and you've already described it from the method that you can see how you could get such micro level uh, evidence as to how a system sustains this kind of economic growth in, in the short, and I guess you also say the medium uh, run. But, but in addition, you're also showing how a selective property rights regime, you know, might not just, it's not necessarily transitional. It's not necessarily temporary. Um, that I think the way you lay it out is that given all the other institutional constraints in China, in particular, this very uncertain regulatory environment, this kind of selective property rights regime could actually be a pretty good solution to uncertainty. So, you know, I think, I think everything that you said really helps us better understand what's going on in, in the book. And actually, I guess that leads me to ask you a little bit about the place of Chinese property protection in context compared to authoritarian regimes in Eastern Europe or Latin America. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the tools available to private firms in China that maybe are different and that are the same, um, with knowing that most of the audience is not necessarily familiar with your case. Yeah, so... Um, so this, is mostly, uh, this book is mostly a China book, and I didn't really... Um, dig deep into um, whether other countries that has transitional um, uh, 
property rights could use the strategy, but I think I did draw a lot of comparison with uh, cases in uh, in the former Soviet Union countries, and for example in Ukraine. And uh, I would also highly recommend uh, a book by Stan Marquis. So it's a few years earlier that looks at uh, property select, uh, also kind of selective property rights, you know, partial property rights in Russia and in Ukraine. And there he's also talking at bottom up strategies. So there he's looking at private sectors uh, alliances with um, different actors, civil society actors, and also foreign actors uh, to to defend themselves against um, state um, expropriation. And uh, there's some new work that looks at Russia, which also look at how... uh, how private entrepreneurs join politics to to benefit themselves and also to protect themselves. So I I think that there are some parallels that we can see between China and uh, and many other um, countries that has uh, impartial property rights. But I think the strategies differ a little bit here and there. Um, when you make the list in the book about the kinds of um, tools that private firms in China have, you know, you, you talk about um, having a private force or informal connections. Um, You talk about partial ownership structures and alliances, but, but the legislature is the, 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 the element that is sort of unique to your study. And I'm wondering if there's something we haven't touched on yet, maybe a little bit about, um, whether this works, um, I, th- I think you've explained the logic of why one would do this, but is it the case that this is an effective strategy for the um, for the entrepreneurs that turn themselves into legislators? Do they get what they want? Yes, that's a great question. So I think if you do a very serious cost-benefit analysis, um, I'm not so confident that the benefits totally outweigh the cost. And actually, it's really, it's almost impossible to look at all the returns uh, to office because protection to property, I didn't want to argue that it was the only uh, benefit that one can earn from having this office. You know, the uh, entrepreneur also builds uh, human, human, excuse me, uh, entrepreneur also builds uh, a great network with local political official and uh, also economic elites that help them in many ways, even after they step down from the office. So, um, so the benefits really uh, go a long way. And also you get easier access to government contracts, you make friends, you may get cheaper land, cheaper credits. So my book re- didn't really go into the details of all this, all different possible benefits. I was only focusing on um, this one element that might not be discussed in the previous uh, works. So I would say that um, that this benefit, we're not sure um, if it was the cost. And also the cost is not very obvious because everything, um, you know, how one can get a seat, uh, the, the process is not totally transparent. You have to work the system. You have to make friends with uh, staffers in the People's Congress office. You also have to... Um, you know, know the right people, for example, in the business association or in the women's federation, if you're a women candidate. So there are costs incurred at every step of the way, which uh, which were not easily measurable by social scientists. So if you mm-hmm. ask, um, if you ask entrepreneur whether it's worth it to to 
to take the seat and that does it really worth all the effort? Some of them might tell you yes and some of them may tell you no. Actually, I, I talked to entrepreneurs who said, you know, I'm not going to run again. It was too much trouble and I would just rather step down and focus on my business. And I would also meet entrepreneurs who said, you know, I tried really hard this year. I didn't get a seat and I was really disappointed. So I think you, you see, um, you see people in both directions and, um, um, and also, when you look at medium run and long run, I think that's a very uh, that's very um, that's a point that you picked up from my book. That I actually don't have the answer whether the system would work very well in the long run. So I think I said in the short run it seemed to work because we think that the system seemed to pick the right uh, pick the winner or pick the more successful companies who both have the right political title and also have a relatively well functioning uh, successful business. But, you know, is the system always going to be good at picking those winners, put them in the position, or it's, it's going um, it's gonna to create too many seats, too many opportunities for rent seeking, and, um, you know, and the ones that didn't get chosen will become uh, expropriated to a larger, ex- to, to, to a larger mm-hmm. extent that it hurts the economy. I think... We don't know in the long term which direction it would go. So, so there, I'm, um, I'm, I think I'm, I'm uh, agnostic about it. I had a question. What What do these people do when they are legislators? Do they do a good job? Are they just there protecting their own interests, or do they also get uh, sort of do, yeah. do they get sucked sucked into to doing things other than protecting their own private property yeah so being a local legislator and also a national legislator is a part-time job in china so it doesn't really take too much time and effort um so if you are a provincial or a city level legislator um you are required to go to this annual meeting that lasts about a week or two so in those two weeks or one week, you are uh, confined into you know a, a conference room together. You uh, read over government reports. You vote on issues, and you know those issues usually are passed. Um, but that's a full time job for you for one week or eight days. And after that, you can you know go about doing your business. But for the connections that you make during those period of time. And because you have this title of a local legislator, it's very easy for you to talk to anybody else in the same legislature for you to, you know, engage in uh, different kind of meetings or, you know, group discussions or research trips, etc. So that's really where you make all the, uh, all the uh, connections. Mm-hmm. But they also need to submit legislative proposals or policy suggestions to governments. And the local government units have to reply to those proposals. So that's really where deputies fulfill their legislative duties. And uh, so those bills are not usually online or not public. But I was able to collect a few uh, from a few localities. And I do see that private entrepreneurs who are legislators are very active in writing those bills. So they write mm-hmm. multiple bills per year, but they usually don't talk about their own business interest or the business interests of their sector because they're supposed to represent the interest of their um, of their community. For example, if I am an entrepreneur of, uh, let's say, a textile company, usually I don't write bills or a policy proposal about how to improve the business environment for my industry, but I write about potholes in my community. I write about garbage disposal. 
So I find that very fascinating. And they do spend time writing those bills and collect public opinions. And some of them even set up websites for uh, constituents to to write to them. So there we do see some local level democracies going on. And uh, you also can see how government respond to those bills or uh, recommendations. So government agencies are required to respond to, to those proposals within a limited amount of time. And legislators also can evaluate uh, the responsiveness and or the qualities of the response. And some of, th- some of the uh, bills are posted online so people can see whether government uh, satisfactorily fulfilled uh, the requests of legislators. So there you can I, can, I think there's no hard requirement for legislators to write, you know, X number of bills. And there you definitely see some legislators much more active um, than others. And they're comparing entrepreneurs with non-entrepreneurial legislators. Um, for the data that we have, entrepreneurs are slightly more active. So you're right. They are spending mm-hmm. you know, some part of their time um, fulfilling their le- legislative duties instead of running businesses. Well, you can, I mean, it's, a, it's an amazing book and it has so many aspects that are interesting. This idea of the formal power, not really being enough to explain their success and just deterring expropriation, but then also they're in office and they're not just deterring expropriation. They're doing all these other things that you've just described. And that makes me wonder about COVID-19. How are these private entrepreneurs uh, reacting to the crisis? Are they providing relief? What, what is their role right now? Yeah, thanks, Susan, for asking that very important question. Um, So here, I am now living in the United States, but I have been observing private uh, companies' involvement in uh, both in the U.S. and in China, and see, I see a lot of parallel. For example, um, the private company that everybody or a lot of people here probably have heard of is Alibaba, which is uh, one of the biggest online. Uh, commerce company, and uh, it also has amazing network of offline logistic uh, units. So when um, when the first city, that's um, Wuhan, China, which uh, was the epicenter of the break outbreak, uh, was under fully uh, under total lockdown, um, Alibaba and um, and you know its subsidiaries quickly uh, mobilized um, its workers and started to deliver um, you know groceries and other necessary. Um, goods to to the local communities and when you talk about lockdown in china it's total lockdown people are not allowed to leave their buildings and there you do see all those delivery men uh, hired by those uh, companies like alibaba to to really uh, support local citizens and they also hired uh, a lot of restaurant um, employees who who were of course out of job during the epidemics uh, to kind of retrain them to become delivery service um, personnel. So so they were very active in communities in Wuhan and also in other cities in Hubei province where the outbreak is mostly severe. And uh, besides, you know, distribution, logistics support, uh, private companies are in China and also here in the U.S. I think they're very much involved in uh, research and development and coming up uh, with, you know, medicines, new, um, you know, diagnostics and uh, you know, hopefully, possibly cure and uh, and vaccine. So I think that's really where a lot of those Chinese companies, private companies, are putting their energy at. And uh, maybe one thing I think I'm also, you know, still learning about this is that um, the private healthcare sector is growing in China. And I just realized that uh, also the same company Alibaba, they're providing healthcare 
um, to to companies that are really you know micro size or small size, which are not covered by uh, by any other system. So here, probably you know Uber drivers they're on their own uh, to get their healthcare system. But in China, they're started to be covered by those um, you know big tech companies because the tech um, most of those merchants are using the tech companies' uh, payment system to keep their business going, and the tech company started to provide healthcare for them. You know, it's not a huge amount. Doesn't cover everything, but it's really a good start. So I'm really seeing that the private sector is stepping up, providing a lot of services, not only to the local communities, but also to um, but also to to small businesses. So that's probably oh. something I can look into in my next book. Uh, well, so that was my next question. What <laughs> What is the next book? What What are you working on now? I know you're on sabbatical. So what 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 are you up to? Yeah, so I think the, so. My first book is called Private Sector in Public Serv uh, in Public Office, and now I'm interested in the private sector in public service, and I think that's also <laughs> an area I can conduct you know comparative studies in you know essentially in all countries. Private sector is engaged in some kind of uh, public service, and what's so unique about China is that um, the civil society um, is definitely much more restrained there you know there's very limited space for ngos to operate under a very strong authoritarian state but the state really cannot um deliver everything especially in time of crisis so there i do see a bigger role of the private company but also uh, of the state company which uh, i haven't covered too much uh, in the book um to, to really step up and uh, to also use their comparative advantage to uh, to deliver service, to deliver uh, products and solutions um, to citizens. Well, when you finish that book, I'd love to have you back to talk about it. Um, I want to recommend to everybody Waho's The Private Sector in Public Office, Selective Property Rights in China. It's available on the Cambridge University website. Um, uh, on the Cambridge University website. It's also available on Bookshop or Indie, also on Amazon and um, Barnes and Noble. So thank you so much for your time today and, and good luck with the next book. Thank you, Susan. I want to say this was such a pleasure to talk to you and I really enjoyed this conversation. Oh, me too. Thank you so much. Thank you.